0: let's dig in. So this week you got to take a look at the image of God as mentioned in Genesis chapter one. And tonight we are going to be discussing four images. And I have no fancy transitions, so just enjoy that. Image number one, all right? So the word image that you saw in Genesis one is the word tselem. And it's a word that means an idol image. So kind of interesting that we see Tzalem in Genesis 1 to refer to humans. But it refers to an idol statue, which again, remember, this is in the ancient Near East, where it was commonly believed in the whole known world that your purpose as a human is to feed the gods. That's why you exist. So the problem with that, how are you supposed to feed deities? Through Tzalem. You use an image, you use an idol. That's what the purpose is. So to have an idol, you would need to wait until the god initiates the creation of an idol. The fact that there is an idol is kind of an honor because that means that a god initiated to you. And so the god initiates to a manufacturer. The manufacturer sculpts or shapes this image And then after it's been baked or finished, whatever, however it was made, it would go through this ceremony called the mouth-washing ceremony or the mouth-opening ceremony. So it would be washed a number of times to, you know, wash away the pollution of the manufacturer touching it, human touching it, and then also to actually, like, open its mouth so that after the mouth-washing or mouth-opening ceremony, the idol would be able to receive, drink Or eat or smell incense and stuff like that. And interestingly, after the mouth washing or mouth opening ceremony, it was no longer referred to as an idol or an image. From that point on, it was referred to as the God's name itself. So it goes from being a Tselem to being an Elohim. So it wasn't just a symbol of a God it was as though the God itself was there in that room with you. So whenever humans interacted with an idol image, it was as though they were interacting with a deity itself. Image number two. You can have images of God, they had many, but in one scenario, and only in one scenario, is a human made in the image of God. Only one kind of human. Kings. Only kings. It's because of this that the phrase to be made in the image of a god was a phrase that was used to describe kings. It's a sonship term. You saw this in your homework in Genesis chapter 5, that Seth was in the image or likeness of his father, Adam, or Adam. And so to say that you're made in the image of someone or you bear the image of someone means you are the child of that someone. You look like them. And so kings claim to be made the image of God. So people occasionally believed that or not occasionally, they believe that gods would occasionally come down and have sex with humans. and the offspring of those unions would become these, like, mighty warrior kings. Like these conquerors, these rulers. Fearsome and strong. The Bible calls them the giborim. These, like, really mighty men. They're conquerors. They're kings. They're usually represented or depicted as being giants. And don't think, like, Jack and the Giant Beanstalk. But, like, nine feet tall. (laughs) Or... Seven feet tall in their day because they were shorter. But they're, they're these big humans. They tower over everyone else. They look mighty. They look like they're related to the gods. Like you're in their presence. It's just like, oh, you're different. You must be a Giborim. You must be made in the image of our god. So Gilgamesh, famous Mesopotamian king, he claimed to be one-third god. So ever you want to do the math on that, that is what people widely believed. That made sense to them. They were like, yeah, that makes sense. Statues of him show him like holding a line that looks like like it's tiny compared to the size of his body. Again, to get across like his eminence that this is a guy who really is the son of a god. And so people believed that kingship was descended from heaven, and that a king's right to rule was literally God-given. You cannot argue with the king because you would be arguing with the God itself. Their right to rule is God-given, however they feel fit to rule. So the king represented as the son of a goddess or a god, would represent that patron deity's rule over the land. So if he rules well and there's order, then it reflects very well on the god. But if there's disorder in the kingdom, it reflects very poorly on the gods, and they'll be pissed at the king. So part of the nature, the foundation of being made in the image of a god in the ancient Near East was to rule. And have you ever noticed that the Bible rarely portrays kingship in a good light? John Walden points out that when people asked for a king, that Yahweh grants it almost grudgingly. In Deuteronomy 18, where it gives the specifications of what a king ought to do, what he ought to be like. In Deuteronomy 18, it presents a negative view of the kingship rather than lauding it as the highest form of humanity. So the Bible's perspective on kingship is very different than everyone else, hyper countercultural. And it takes a really long time before Israel even gets a king. There are centuries that pass between Abraham and the first king. Like, even when you have the nation of Israel coming out of the Exodus, it is still centuries that pass between Moses and the first king. Feels kind of odd for there to be a kingdom, a nation with no ruler, right? But you know, Israel really wanted a king. They said they wanted to be like all the other nations, to have someone go out ahead of them in battle, which was what Yahweh had been doing. He had been going before them in battle. But they want to be like all the other nations. And so God gives them the sort of king that they imagine. He gives them Saul, the first king. And Saul, that dude, his dad, his dad is a Giborim. He's a head taller than everyone else, he's big, he looks like the guy. Right? He looks like a king. But, uh, yeah, Saul was a herder of donkeys. Herder of asses. Which, little intentional slur. Not even a good herder of donkeys. But they get the king, who they imagine is kingly. And it's a train wreck. And then God initiates, says, Alright, step aside, Saul. I'm going to choose the sort of king that I want for my people. And he chooses David, this child. Whenever Samuel, the prophet, goes to Jesse's house and says, like, all right, it's one of your sons. Jesse starts parading all of his sons in front of Samuel. And Samuel's looking at the sons and going, like, oh, surely this guy. Oh, surely this guy. And then all the sons run out. Saul's like, or Samuel's like, Do you have any other sons? And he's like, well, yeah, David, but he's a a kid. That can't be, that cannot be who God is wanting to be king. But God wants the child king. So David becomes king. You have David and Goliath, you know. Goliath, he's a Giborim, but David slays him. He silences his slander. Looks pretty promising, but then there's the whole moral failure of, you know, committing adultery with his friend's wife and then having his friend killed. That'll hamper your reputation. Then Solomon, his son, becomes king after him. Again, starts off pretty strong, sounds pretty promising, and then it all goes south because Solomon starts acting like all the other kings. Or he makes slaves of everyone. And then that, that list in Deuteronomy 18, that says what a king should and shouldn't do. Solomon systematically does every single one of them. And everything just blows up in his face. Where God says, I'm going to rip this away from you. The whole nation is going to be torn in two from now on. But for your father's sake, I'm not going to do it in your day. Not for your sake. For your father's sake. Think of how that must have sounded. So the kingdom splits in two. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Northern kingdom. They, all of their kings, wicked. Wicked, wicked, wicked. They only do what is evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Southern kingdom, a little bit more hope. They have four kings who are sort of all right. They have got four kings who do what is right in the eyes of God, but they don't take down all of the idolatry in the land. They don't stop it all. It's a half hearted obedience, it's a half hearted adherence. I wouldn't trust any of them to watch my kids. But those are the kings. And then the kingship fails when Babylon comes in. So That's what we got, kings in the Bible. Why does Yahweh have such beef with kings? From the very beginning. <laughs> Even before there were kings. It's because of what he says in Genesis chapter 1. Where Elohim created human or humanity in his image. In the image of Elohim he created them. Male and female, he created them. All of humanity is made in his image. Together, men and women are created to rule and show the world what he's like. Why does he have such beef with the kingship? Because we were all supposed to be kings and queens. As Cheesy as that sounds. That was his intention for us. We were all given that high and weighty honor. Image number three. So say you live in the ancient Near East. If the gods or if the kings are related to the gods, where did the rest of humanity come from? Feels like a pretty reasonable question to ask. So in Egypt, this is how the story went. Atum, or Ra, he lost his kids. They wandered away. He sent his eye out to look for them and he couldn't find them, and then finally they wandered back to him, and he was so excited to see them again. He was so overjoyed, so happy, that he shed a tear, and that tear fell to the ground. Humans. So it kind of goes with what we've seen with Egypt. Their their stories are just like, oh, how did that happen? Kind of just, yeah. And then we have Babylon, and Babylon's story goes as you expect Babylon's story to go. Very gruesome. So, you know, I mentioned Tiamat, that saltwater dragon goddess. Marduk slays her, slices her in half and everything. Well, she had a general. And the gods, they had been toiling and laboring, cultivating the earth for over 1,300 years. And they are tired, and they want to make some slave animals to feed them so that they don't have to till the land anymore. And so they take Tiamat's general, kill him, and spill his blood in with some clay, and then shape humans out of that. Who's feeling special? So humans were intentionally created as slaves in the Babylonian narrative. But you know who isn't? You know who's the one human who is not a slave? The king, conveniently. But he gets to tell all of you guys what to do. Because he is made in the image of God. And then Yahweh tells his story. And at this point you can begin to understand how countercultural Genesis 1 and 2 is. So if you could open up your study books to the text in the back to chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. And as you do that, I want to tell you three words in Hebrew. The word stream... Is Ed. The word ground is Adama. And the word human or humanity is Adam. So it's not actually, fun fact, it's not actually until chapter 5 that Adam or Adam becomes a proper name. But before that, his name just means human or humanity. So it could refer to plural, all of humanity, like in Genesis 1 26. Or it could refer to a human. So, all throughout Genesis 2 and 3 and 4, it is the human, the Adam. So, knowing that, that Ed is stream, Adama is ground, and Adam is human, let's read this. Yahweh Elohim had not caused rain on the land, and there was no Adam to work the Adama, but an Ad was going up from the land, and it would water the whole face of the Adama. And Yahweh Elohim formed the Adam from the dust of the Adama, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. So with this play on words, and with these three verses, you see that God takes the water, he takes the ground, and he makes the human. And I say this because in John chapter 9, we get to a really bizarre healing of Jesus. He heals a man who was born blind. And to that point in Jesus' ministry, he had healed many people in a wide variety of ways. Like he had just touched a leper and he's cleansed. Or he had told the person like, oh, your servant is healed from a distance. And they're just healed. They go home, it's a day journey, and they're healed from that hour that Jesus said that. He just tells people, like, be healed, or tells mute people, like, may your mouth be open, and it's, they're healed, and then we encounter this miracle, and this is how it goes, so John chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, who wants to volunteer for that miracle? This is the most gross miracle, in my opinion. And again, Jesus could have just been like, "May I see." He had done it before. He could have just touched the man's eyes. He had done it before. Why? So gross. Jesus is a good teacher. He knows what he's doing, and if ever we encounter something Jesus is doing and we're like, "Ah, he's probably up to something profound which he is. Jesus mixes water that he has provided with the ground to restore this human. This miracle has Genesis 2 in mind. When Yahweh Elohim mixes the water that he has provided with the ground to make a human, here now Jesus does the same thing to restore a human. Again, this is one of those sneaky moments where Jesus is claiming to be God. To be the one who did this. That he was here in Genesis 2. So Genesis 2 verse 7, it says something kind of interesting that very much departs from the other stories in the ancient Near East that they were used to hearing. It says that God made humanity from the dust. And all the other stories went that humanity was made from clay. Clay is useful. It is productive. You can make things out of it. Like my parents are artists in Asheville, North Carolina, and there's loads of people who sculpt there. You can make incredible things with clay. But it's not clay. It's not useful. It cannot be shaped into things. It's not even garden soil. Like this is not miracle Grow. We're not made from that. Because God made the human in the wilderness and then had to put him into the garden. So he's not made from garden soil. He's made from out there. And remember last week I mentioned that there are three chaos realms that represent chaos and death. The T'hom, the deep waters, the darkness, and the wilderness desert. And guess where dust comes from? The desert, the wilderness. So dust actually represents mortality and death. That's what you're made out of, what I'm made out of. He takes that to turn into his image bearer. Not something useful like clay, not something nutrient-rich like garden soil, but dust. And in our culture, dust is useless. It has not just no value, it has a negative value. We spend money to get rid of dust. A Couple months ago, I had to buy a new vacuum and it was upsetting to me how much money I had to spend to get rid of dust in my house. But I did it because I have toddlers, and it's worth it. But just think of like how much of the stuff we have in our house is just its sole purpose it's for getting rid of the dust. You got the vacuum. You got the mop. You got spray and wipes. You got Swiffer. Think of like all the Swiffer ads. Like, oh, yeah, we get rid of dust really well. Give us your money. And we do it. We give them our money because it's worth it to us. Because dust doesn't just have no value, it has negative value. We will spend money to not have it. But on a grimmer note, for these Israelites, it didn't just have negative value of that sort. It represented death, mortality. This is the stuff of death. We have in our minds this idea... That God created humanity, and this is a touchy subject, prepare yourselves. We have in our minds that God created humanity immortal. But that's not the story that Moses is telling here. Instead, God takes what represents mortality and invites us into immortality. Immortality. And that is why the tree of life is going to be so significant. That's why outside the garden, outside the tree of life, access to it, they're going to die. That their relationship with Yahweh was always what would give them life. Literally and spiritually. There has never been such a thing as eternal life apart from a relationship with the Lord. So God chooses the dust to make his image bearers and this is in my mind apart from the crucifixion of Jesus in his incarnation the most humble act the Lord has ever done. Because imagine it at this point like by day six when he creates humans he has made everything This is his last creation. He's made everything. The flyers that fly, the swimmers that swim, the swarmers that swarm. And just think about, like, all of the animals he made, whether it's the tiger or the eagle or the great whale or, like, all of these powerful and intelligent and beautiful creatures the Lord has made. Whatever comes to your mind. He overlooks every single one of them. And then he goes into the desert. And he picks up the dust. And he says, you are the one I want. You will be made in my image. How humble of an act. From the very beginning, God's kingdom has been upside down. He chooses the least and the last every time, whether it is the dust or it is the youngest son of Jesse who's out being a shepherd in the fields. He chooses the least and the last. And he exalts the least to a position of the highest honor. He crowns them, he crowns the dust with glory. So here he's saying that he is the father of all humanity. They're all made in his image. He is the father of all of them. And he sets them over his whole creation to rule. He gave us everything. Like, think about that. He gave us everything apart from the Elohim to rule over. Which, like, the birds, doesn't that feel like kind of encrouching on Elohim territory? They fly up there where the Elohim are. But no, humanity was given rule over them. Or everything in the seas. Like who feels like, oh yeah, I really tamed a fish. Like, but he says, no, that's, I want you to rule those too. Everything. He gave us everything apart from the Elohim themselves. What an honor. And then sin comes in. And it corrupts our rule. And rather than ruling over God's creation and cultivating life and flourishing. Instead, we turn and try to rule each other. And that was an authority we were never given. And then we see things like Cain trying to rule over Abel. We see things like kings and slaves. Or the exalted, or the mighty is exalted over the lowly. Image number four, last one. Over a thousand years pass from Moses and the Israelites, where king has conquered king, empires have risen and fallen, and finally you have Rome. Roman occupation and invasion, and they were brutal. But you know, they had a gospel to proclaim. See, gospel was a common word in the days of the Romans. It referred to the perceived peace of the Roman Empire. So, it was a common word and a common thing for people to hear the good news, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, Son of God. See, Kings may come and go. Empires might change, but humans don't change. They still believe the same thing, that the Son of God is king. So Caesar Augustus, that's how he gained his throne, by claiming to be the Son of God. That's how he got his throne, and so it was common, common, common for them to hear the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. They you know how Mark starts his gospel? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know where Mark was writing his gospel? To Rome. It is intentional. So as you can imagine, Rome making all these claims and being Rome it was not very popular for the Jews they ruled with a brutal fist and for the Jews the prophets had spoken of a messiah an anointed one or a Christ who would which anointed one is the English translation messiah is Hebrew and then Christ is Greek just for clarity there but the prophets had spoken of one who would be a king like David he would rule over his people, and all of the nations would gather. And so the Jews, at this point in the New Testament, they had an idea of what that anointed one was going to be like, what that king was going to be like. He would be mighty. He would be zealous. And He would be righteous. And some people believe that he was not going to come until people began to be obedient to the law. The Pharisees. Which is why they hated sinners so much, and tax collectors, and prostitutes. Because they would look at those people and say, you are the reason the Messiah has not come. You are the reason why Rome is still ruling over us. And then Jesus comes. He's friends with all those people. You get why they were so offended by him. But Jesus comes. and How does he come? God himself in the flesh. Wrapping himself up in human flesh. How does he come? Not in a palace, not with trumpets, not with praise, but in silence. No one would know. No one would know that night. The world had changed forever. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable and a feeding trough, which it's fall, we go see pumpkin patches and there's farm animals. Look at their feeding troughs. That's what the incarnate God was laid in first. He was an outcast, In Luke's gospel, when it says that there is no room for them in the inn, that word inn is not the word inn. It's the word house. Because remember, Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown. And everyone had to go back to their hometowns because of the census. So you know who's there? All of Joseph's family. There was no room for them in the house. If you are having a family reunion, what causes you to look at the pregnant woman who's on the verge of bursting and say, you go sleep with the animals? See, they, can, they know math. They know this child is not Joseph's. So they treat her that way. Jesus was born as an outcast in his own family. Or even amongst his brothers thought he was a crazy person until he ascended. (laughs) That'll change it. But he was born an outcast. And then when he grows up, the town he grows up in is Nazareth. Of all places, Nazareth is not really (laughs) like all referenced in the Old Testament. There's like, it's the combination of two words. So there's, there's intention there. But it's so random that whenever Philip like, realizes, oh my gosh, this is the Christ, and he goes and he tells Nathaniel, like, Nathaniel, I think we found the Christ. And Nathaniel's like, oh, where does he come from? And Philip says, from Nazareth. And then Nathaniel says, Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? He chose such a rando town to grow up in that people go, What? Why there? No one would look at Nazareth for the Savior of the world. But there he was. And when he begins his ministry, that is when he begins to look kingly. He performs all of these miracles that are astounding, where people are beginning to realize, like, oh my gosh, this guy could be the Christ. He could be the king. He could be the one to free us from Roman occupation and free Israel Finally. And after the feeding of 5,000, people are pumped. They are ready to crown him as king. And then Jesus purposely says basically everything he can to offend every one of them. And they all go away. Because he's not the sort of king that they want, he's not the sort of king they're actually looking for. So in Mark chapter 10, Jesus' disciples are arguing. Big shocker they were doing that all the time so they are arguing about when jesus comes into his kingdom when he does conquer rome and free israel finally and sits as king of the country who is going to reign beside him who is going to have the most rule and power beside jesus in verse 42 jesus calls them over it says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That their great ones exercise authority over them. You know that kings treat humanity like slaves. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not building the sort of empire that they are imagining. John the Baptist said that he was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. And yet, on the night before he was betrayed and executed, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Jesus is a king, but he is a very different kind of king. And he is building a very different kind of kingdom. And it's, again, one that his own disciples, his own family, did not recognize until after his ascension. And in his kingdom, every human is made in the image of God. So however you treat the least of these... It is as though you are treating Christ himself. They are his tzalaam. When we encounter another human, our posture toward them must be that I am encountering Jesus himself. I am serving Jesus himself. Because they are made in his image. Because see, we are made in the image of God. But as Paul and the author of Hebrews later meditated on the identity of Christ, they said that he is the image. Jesus is the image that we were made in. He is the original. He is pure humanity. He is everything that we ought to be. We look at his life, how he treated other people. His sacrifice, his love, his zeal. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God bestows glory on the least and the last. He is not looking for the powerful or for the impressive. See, kingdoms change, rulers change but we don't change. We still operate this way. We all want to be impressive and important. But God's eyes are not looking for people who are impressive and important and powerful. His eyes are on the lowly, the unseen, the unimpressive, the weak, and the mundane the first person that Jesus ever told that he was the Messiah, the Christ, was a Samaritan woman. For she was viewed as even more unclean than the Gentiles. The Jews preferred Romans over Samaritans. More than this, she was unwanted by five husbands. Now the man she's with doesn't even want her enough to propose. Jesus comes in as the seventh man. He wants her. And he gives her the honor of being the first person he ever tells his true identity to. The first person to understand Jesus' parables was a Syrophoenician mother, a Gentile. The first evangelist was a formerly demonized man. That one we were talking about. The story when Jesus feeds the 4,000, that was in a Gentile region. How do you think those 4,000 people heard about Jesus? The only monetary gift Jesus ever recognizes was the two pennies of a widow. The first witness of the incarnation is shepherds. Stinky shepherds. They're the ones who hear the trumpet blast and get the sparkling show to shepherds. And don't think like, oh, the like ceramic white boy who like has the cane and the sheep beside him. (laughs) Think of like, these are sketchy people, sketchy, dirty, dirty people where their testimony was not upheld in the court of law. They were the witnesses of no one. And yet God says, you will be my witness, the only one. The first person in, or the first people in Matthew's gospel that recognized Jesus as king is Babylonian sorcerers. Those magi, means magician, means sorcery. Babylonian sorcerers. The first person in Mark's gospel to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, like he claimed at the beginning of his gospel, is a Roman centurion who is charged with killing Jesus. The first witnesses of the resurrection were women, who again, their testimony was not upheld in the court of law. The first person to see the resurrected Jesus in the flesh was a woman who had previously been demonized. And all of Jesus's disciples, hand-picked disciples, were uneducated. If Jesus is trying to be strategic about getting his name out there and building this like mighty kingdom to overthrow Rome, if he's trying to be strategic, he is not doing a good job. Right? Who would pick this on their team? Like if you're playing P.E., you're choosing your team, who picks these people? Half of them Israel hates, and the other half, their word and testimony isn't upheld in law, like in a court. The number one reason in the early church why people did not believe in the gospel, their main argument was the first witnesses were women. That's why you know it's a hoax. You can't trust them. But God chooses them, the least, consistently. So what kind of king is Jesus if these are the people he chooses for this high honor? What sort of kingdom is he building? What sort of kingdom is he inviting us into? And what does it mean that he chose us? There is no room for pride and we've been made out of dust. I think it was Charles Spurgeon, I want to say, who said, "You know the only difference between you and a clam? The clam is the clam that God intended it to be, but you are not the person God intended you to be. We are made of dust. He is the only thing that gives us value, and He gives us every ounce of value to where the price on our head is his own. So what kind of kingdom is Jesus establishing? What kind of kingdom is he if this is the team that he chooses? This is a God and a king who makes dust, holy ground. Let's pray. Lord God, again, you are so different from us. Jesus, I thank you that you choose the least and the last. I know for myself, I have so wanted to do something important or impressive for you, and you don't require that. You just say, abide in me. You just want us to be with you, to trust you. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see ourselves as made in your image, that we would take that high honor seriously, that we would be humbled by it, that we would rule in kindness, that we would treat our neighbor, whether they are lofty and prideful or lowly, would we treat them with honor and dignity, knowing that however we treat them, it is as though we're treating you that way. Lord, would we fear you more? Would we love you more? Would we take you more seriously? Spirit, help us to love our neighbor. Help us to follow Jesus, even if it doesn't make sense. Amen.